0: Thank you for tuning in to Sparks and Honey's Daily Culture Briefing. My name is Ben Grinspan, and today we're going to look at culture in the vertical, using Q, our cultural intelligence platform, to unpack trends and changes in human behavior. Joining me today uh, as he, uh, for his very first time as a co-briefer is the wonderful Trevor gamble Borsch uh looking very appropriate for our conversation about biodiversity today i think i saw a frog jump out of those pants um and uh let's move on to our cast here we also have alice lee calling in from san francisco and uh brendan shaughnessy calling in from london this is a pan global conversation about global environmental needs glad to have you friends on Um, So, you know, today we're going to look into the business case for biodiversity. Now, one thing that we've been working on as a strategy department here at Sparks and Honey is thinking about sort of uh, near futures, better futures, how to predict the future, right? And so we actually did this really interesting use case where we sort of came together and talked about the topics that we feel like as a strategy department are popping up across our work, whether we're talking about the work we do for social media companies or for food and beverage companies or even for insurance. These are all different topics that have um, uh, that, that, that have come to the fore that are things that we want to explore further because we feel like they have a lot of future cultural import. And that's why we landed on this business case for biodiversity and, and sort of why this story matters. And you know, really, our question today is, how can brands, influencers, and even average consumers make a strong business case? We're preserving biodiversity butterflies and wildflowers, and you know tapirs are nice things but there's a big question i think as to why we're preserving them not just because they're wonderful but also like uh the 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 real financial value of that that is the uh, corporate um uh raider in me um but let's take a look at those elements of culture today to understand kind of the trends around this and how our system unpacks this kind of complicated question about uh, biodiversity and I'll, I'll point out a couple things here so um, I like the distributed trust pops up here. I think that it speaks very deeply to the idea that, like biodiversity is not something that a one person alone can manage and preserve, right? It's actually about an ecosystem, I mean, it's very fundamentally about ecosystems and ecosystems of care. and um, And so that's also, I think why we've picked up this EOC that we don't see too much on the briefings, although we do see and often our work with healthcare clients, synthetic nature, which is this idea that we can uh, either create artificial or um, augment uh, sort of natural processes. It makes a lot of sense here when we're looking at key terms around things like ecosystem and biodiversity. Um, Trevor, you're, uh, you are a legit expert in this space. I'm very curious uh, from your all the research you've done and thinking about this, what elements of culture do you feel like are really important for us to look at um, today.
1: The one that I wanted to call out is actually a little bit further back. It's tangible, intangible. Because I think when we have conversations about biodiversity, a lot of the time it's, oh, think of the polar bears. Oh, think of the rainforest. But a lot of these things are very much real and commonplace for people in those areas of the world that we don't think about as much. But they have impacts on the things that are in our day-to-day lives, whether it's the hair care that you use or the food that you're eating. There's a real tangible impact yeah. for you from these things that feel a little more far off.
0: I, I love that. I think that's such a good one to highlight because really that's, I mean, a business case is fundamentally, uh, how do we make things feel tangible with, uh, you know, with, with value that goes beyond altruistic value, but commercial and and even consumer value as well. And cultural value, of course. So with that said, let's dive on into our Uh, signals. And I love the the headline for this one. So we're going to start at a macro level. It's important to recognize just how much of business uh, that's conducted globally taps, obviously, into uh, nature and the global commons, right? We think that, you know, uh, a brand has a factory in one place and consumers in one place, but really it exists Uh, perhaps, uh, you know, across the globe. So, quote, it it is estimated that uh, 44 trillion U.S. dollars in global value um, is added by nature, right? That's literally a half of the world's uh, GDP. Um, And uh, there's lots of different interesting uh, data within that. Um, In a world where industrialized countries control hugely disproportionate amounts of global capital, the global south actually has an outsized share of biodiversity, meaning that it has a stronger business case for preserving and leveraging biodiversity that isn't just a benefit to, like, the local monkeys, but that is also really critical to developing these underdeveloped uh, countries. According to the World Economic Forum, investment in nature could generate up to $10 trillion in annual business revenue um, every year uh, and create over 400 million new jobs globally by 2030. That's a lot of new jobs and a lot of money. Um, You know, the the size of the Chinese economy, for instance, is about $12 trillion a year. You're functionally adding another China if you preserve, uh, if you do... uh, right by nature. Um, Already a number of large global banks and impact investors, including HSBC, Credit Suisse, and BNP Paribas, um, have created new biodiversity funds. And what's more, addressing biodiversity will have an added benefit of addressing climate change, because the two are so intimately linked, right? Um, It is cheaper to address biodiversity than it is to try to address every disaster attached to climate change. So I guess the question is, do you think the average consumer understands this? What does the average consumer think when they hear about biodiversity? And uh, Alice, I might ask you to start. What, what's, uh, what is the average take on, on biodiversity?
2: Mm-hmm. Um, based on the uh, report from United Nations, um, Gen Z and millennials are better informed about biodiversity than uh, other age groups and increasingly like investigative uh, companies like Walk the Walk, um, not just like talk about the issues. And also like consumers in France, Brazil, and Switzerland have higher awareness of biodiversity mm. um, than consumers in Germany, UK, and US. Um, and also, like... Um, um, 42% of consumers could not name a single brand taking positive actions for biodiversity mm. and also like more, more than 70% of consumer surveys suggested their trust is higher when a brand's commitment to uh, ethical sourcing of biodiversity is independently verified.
0: I I mean, that is fascinating data. I'm also interested to hear that it's funny that it's not just we think about maybe Europe as being uh, a little more aware of green issues than kind of anywhere else, but I'm fascinated to hear Brazil come in there too, especially given that a couple of years ago, those huge forest fires kind of made them recognize that like how important some of the local things going on with their own biodiversity are globally. Uh, Brendan, what do you think the average person thinks about when they hear biodiversity?
3: Uh, I think Trevor is exactly right with his initial call out of our EOC of tangible, and intangible. And I think that's largely because when the average consumer or the average person hears the word biodiversity, I think there's probably a lot of baggage associated with it because um, we still very much think of all of these terms in the surface level of of understanding. And And I think we haven't really gotten to a place where biodiversity solutions are mainstream, even if awareness is. Um, That said, I think consumers and people at large care about these issues. Uh, We actually did a a future of giving report two years ago, um, and uh, we're looking at where people are donating their money to, and most all major areas were down, and the only two areas that had seen any increases were the environment and animals. And so if we think about that connection to our immediate surroundings and the animals and and living things that encompass it, people care about it. I think it's just making sure that we're framing it in 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 a space of impact.
0: Yeah, I love that. I think that relates to what Alice was saying about most people are sort of unaware of brands that uh, do anything related to biodiversity. But that doesn't mean they're not open to that. If anything, people are very open to preserving that because everyone, ever, most people have very strong and positive feelings about uh, the wonders of nature. Right. Um, Okay, so that is the sort of positive side of things. Trevor, tell us a little bit about the negative side of things.
1: Yeah, looking over to our next signal, uh, this one comes from The Guardian talking about overall destruction of nature and biodiversity and how it is as large a threat, if not larger, a threat of climate change. And so, with the importance of the natural world in mind, whether from protectionist or transactional perspective, biodiversity loss is that Impending threat that we're really starting to grapple with and the vice president of the European Commission called the situation Really very very scary and it doesn't really get much more relatable than that Yeah, Uh, he went on to say that we're killing species at an unprecedented rate and killing those species will make our survival less likely in the same interview uh, The same representatives cited the threat of losing a million species and urged protection of food clean water Pollination and climate stability because we have to consider the overall ecosystem that all these species play into. So question for the panel is this point makes me think of coastal regions right now where plant species especially have been helpful for millennia with mitigating floods and weather disasters um, and likely even more effective than human-made reactive measures. So what are some spaces and industries that you can think of right now that are already facing these direct fallouts and how can they start to grapple with this? And I'm actually gonna direct over to Brendan because we've been working with a client recently who's really trying to figure out how to work with the climate change space where they really haven't had much of a space before.
3: Yeah, and I think so much of uh, the, the area that you're talking about, Trevor, is skills, right? And I, and I think in a, in a future climate change crisis world, we often think about the environment, but we don't think about the people that are then facilitating that interaction with the environment, what new skills are required to operate, what new skills are required to help overcompensate or overcome some of these challenges. So um, that I think is, is the first piece. But the other thing I think is, is how do we reframe um, actors of good in biodiversity. I think one conversation uh, and theme on TikTok that I've seen a lot recently is removing grass and, and moving towards lawns that have uh, clover and even thinking about the role of more naturally occurring uh, biodiversity and and uh, and different things that facilitate better lawn care on an individual basis. So, how do we ourselves think about our most immediate environment as a way of facilitating larger biodiversity as well in our in our uh, regions? And uh, I think that's a maybe the next wave of of consumer awareness beyond just at large is how do I operate within my immediate environment and neighborhoods and and things like that.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting tension for like a Home Depot or a Lowe's. Uh, which you know are there to help us build the sort of homes that we want to build, but we also have to recognize that like, you know, just because if you're if you're living in Ohio and move to I don't know sunny Arizona, like you're gonna have to change what your expectation is of, of your home and what that landscaping looks like. Yeah. And there's probably a major tension for some of those brands, even the Targets or Walmarts of the world who also sell this kind of stuff, to say, mm, how do I give people what they want in the homes they want to build, but also recognize the impact of climate change, the impact of biodiversity? Not everybody needs to be growing every flower they want to grow if they're moving out to Tucson or, or whatever. And I yeah. just kind of wonder what kind
1: of social occurrence
0: to that and how like what Brendan was just saying can that be so that it can be more tied to an individual and how they're making an impact and yeah. so that people can really understand what is the checklist of things that I can do to contribute and then how does that tie to any kind of social currency that you have in terms of how yeah. you can then promote that to the next person. You know where you can see that social currency is if you go to LA and you go to visit people's homes. Like if they own, if they are in charge of that property maintenance, I feel like I'm constantly hearing people like, "Look at the xeric plantings. Look at these cool succulents." You know, there is like actual social capital to not trying to grow a lawn. You know, <laughs> and we need to probably normalize that at least here in the U.S., where people are obsessed with lawns. Um, so let's move into some uh, some signals here. You know, we did want to look at basically the ways in which. Um, uh, organizations, institutions, brands are trying to find opportunity within biodiversity. And so we're going to look at a whole bunch of signals about that Uh, because I think it helps build some of that case and point out some of those cultural attributes that a brand or an institution might be interested in if they're trying to build their own case for biodiversity.
1: Yeah, thinking of that normalization and also maybe the only homes Gen Z will ever own, let's look at Minecraft. Um, (laughs) Right now, Minecraft has been putting out a new update called the Wild Update, where they've introduced mangrove forests and jungle biomes to try and build awareness around the issues that are facing these right now. Uh, They've teamed up with the Nature Conservancy and have also pledged a $200,000 donation to their cause of helping to both raise awareness and take action in this preservation. Uh, But just overall, this is the most downloaded game of all time. We're looking at a very accessible way for people to engage here. So question for the panel again is, while scientifically proven to be a human-made issue time and again, mis- and disinformation around climate and environmental issues makes the list of the most polarizing issues. So what's the value of raising awareness here, and especially in a space that is meant for fun?
0: Mm.
2: Alice? Um <clears throat> uh, definitely I feel like content is interesting. Um I feel like uh uh I think you will be um uh definitely there will be like a uh, supply chain checking verification. Um it's definitely becoming like more mainstream. So I feel like that's kind of expanding into like content. So like, in the future, um, everything will be like fully transparent and not just about the carbon footprint embedded throughout the entire supply chain of a given product and even content. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, like movie, movie ratings will include like environmental and mm-hmm. social impact scores, and definitely including games. So I feel like that's, that's kind of the potential for, uh, for the future um, uh, metrics for content uh, and entertainment business.
0: So Alice, let me push you a little bit on that because we're thinking about the business case here. Do you expect that if there is a, if the Motion Picture Association of America adds a biodiversity uh, call out, that that will make more people wanna go see that movie? Will that boost you know, box office sales?
2: Mm-hmm. Um, definitely, there are many many discussion right now. Like, I feel like the main, um, near-term business issues or like demands emerge as a top obstacle for implementing such uh, such things uh, in the future. Yeah. It's about like the majority um, of the uh, C3 levels that the organizations need to cut back on environmental uh, sustainability uh, practice in some ways due to the pandemic, mm. but like uh, companies can't afford to wait any longer. Like. Uh, like content and business and uh, like uh, organizations, it just cannot afford to wait any longer before taking action. It's because yeah. if we don't add, we are at increased risk of an alarming uh, intensification in these like disasters, which will likely affect almost like every part of life as we know it. That's why. Um, we need to like take collective actions now to avoid like the worst case scenarios down the line. And if if that if that that happens, I feel like it's kind of like we will raise the, um, uh, the definitely raise to the higher priority of border yeah. awareness.
1: I quick go ahead. I quickly want to touch j- on. Oh, Brennan had something.
3: I Thank talk. you. I, I was going to say, uh, I think the question we're trying to answer here is in a definition of a topic that seems to be coming at, like just like sustainability, biodiversity, a lot of people want to jump in on this conversation. So does a, a, an organization or uh, a brand jumping into the conversation through this means of Minecraft or through the metaverse or in a way that might feel surface value? I think the question is, how do we make sure that we are targeted with the ways um, of delivering new information so that it is helpful, clear, and entertaining. In which case, maybe I've just been on way too many uh, kayak trips with my in-laws in Florida, but mangroves <laughs> are an amazing piece of biodiversity that operate between freshwater and saltwater and are absolutely critical to maintaining bodies of water and in protecting from climate change. So I would look at other sort of signifiers of, mm-hmm. um, of healthy environments, whether that's bats, um, or even oyster beds in, in, uh, you know, in the Northeast. Um, and, and, and looking at if we're going to attach ourselves to a cause around biodiversity, making sure that it's actually facilitating change and we're educating people in a way that is actually helpful as opposed to just trying to attach ourselves to biodiversity at large.
1: Yeah, I think that point, along with the point that Alice made, of ensuring that it's the right information in an actionable way, but also in a collective action way, because mm-hmm. the social capital is definitely an important component, but we need to ensure that on the institutional, on the corporate, and business side, there's also action there, because as we're seeing, as companies sometimes try and put that carbon footprint brain onto yeah. an individual, that's not exactly how that works whenever they're a small crumb compared to the ton that you're dumping. And so ensuring that it's a both sides component and that there is that group action around taking that change with the correct information in the most effective way.
0: Um, well, let's move on uh, to talk about a little bit of urban planning. <laughs> if we're talking, look, if we're going to talk video games for you, we got to talk urban planning for me. I wrote an article um, on this. I'm excited. <laughs> <laughs> so, Arts Daily notes that Singapore, of late, has continually uh, building its reputation as a city in nature, with Singaporean design long having a strong uh, consciousness to acknowledge that green spaces matter. Urban planners and architects alike have taken uh, conscientious decisions to weave nature throughout the city as it continues. Uh, to build new developments, right? So it's a pretty impressive feat for uh, an island nation like Singapore. Singapore is a little bit smaller than New York City. Uh, about 100 years ago, it was basically like uh, a, a bunch of villages uh, and a bunch of like drunken British sailors. And it has become one of the best places in the world to live. It is very wealthy. And they have done a really impressive job of, of allowing all that amazing sort of tropical nature there to exist within that space while also building high speed you know metro systems and housing and skyscrapers and all that good stuff the issue however is that singapore is a fairly different culture than the us even though it's very diverse it's definitely pretty it's it's pretty single minded it has a very strong state and so if the state wants to basically come in and put you know rain gardens in your development it's going to happen, right? There's not a whole, there is there is sort of less recourse for people to build out sort of these truly public systems. And I think that raises an interesting tension here where it's like we like biodiversity, we value biodiversity, but here at least in the US and frankly a little bit I think in, uh, in, in the UK or even in places like China and India, I think people bristle at the idea the, the idea of being told they must go without for, uh, you know, for the sake of biodiversity. So my question for the panel is, how do you navigate that tension a little bit where it's like big change requires strong opinions, but those strong opinions may not necessarily align with the individual goals of the person living on that block or who wants to live in that you know, ridiculously green apartment building? So what's your take on, on this tension uh, in, in culture?
3: Oh. Uh, I'll, I'll just say really quickly, I think from a, from a tension standpoint, we're going to, we're, uh, areas that are experiencing uh, change to environment most are going to be the quickest to react to it. Um, and I'll say I felt it as someone who is new to the UK um, and you can see satellite pictures of how it went from green, uh, you know, mountains and hills and parks went from green to gray over the course of the two months that I've been here. Perfect time to move to the UK, by the way, for heat. Um, ah. in which case I feel like, again, as it relates to what are those trade-offs you're willing to make in order to preserve even small, small amounts of what right. was there, um, I think that that tension all of a sudden becomes a little bit more desperate. So, again, back to our EOC of the day mm. of tangible and intangible, um, as these things become a more real and pressing uh, uh, challenge, how we solve from them from a community or citywide uh, solution. I think that's why even if you look at that other example um, in Saudi Arabia, the line of a of a new city and en- environment, we're we're moving to promising extreme changes in the way that we live in order to yeah. make sure that we're preserving the things that we appreciate.
0: You mean the NEOM design with the giant like miles-long skyscraper?
3: It's like a it's like a single kilometer wide and yes, like, yeah. varied, Do you like, know that
0: that Do you know that was created by an Italian design studio as a joke? and was like randomly picked up as an idea anyway sorry i'm 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 yeah. uh, i'm digressing a bit alice what are your thoughts on this civic biodiversity
2: yeah, I think there will be um, definitely in future. I feel like there will be more luxury micro communities or cities and to be like self-sufficient, like uh, mm. with green infrastructure, and they will experimenting with like new and novel economic and political systems. Um, for example, like using like the community coins. For example, uh, uh, like as a new way of like uh, distribute like uh, economy um, and also like kind Of, like, view the ownership and participation of the community members. I feel like that that also another potential, and I feel like um, luxury uh, will be definitely redefined. And uh, it's like a new virtual signaling um, would definitely benefit like premium green brands in the future for this, like, luxury um, micro uh, yeah. cities or communities with their own system.
0: <laughs> I think that's a really, really solid guess, uh, and I think we're going to see that more rapidly than we expect given what Brendan was saying about just uh, sort of that climate change and then thinking of biodiversity as like, I hate to say it as a luxury, but as a luxury good. Speaking of which, tune in tomorrow for our luxury goods briefing. Um, Let's talk about our next set of signals here and we're going to move from cities to uh, the farm where monoculture reigns, but biodiversity is a really important catalyst for producing more food. Um, So around the world, the agricultural industry is getting calls to return to traditional forms of farming over uh, these productive, but also so like deeply harmful to biodiversity practices, right? So, regenerative farm practices, many uh, learning from indigenous communities and advocates, uh, have entered main, the mainstream discussion. And as we've seen in a number of industries, regenerative or regeneration is becoming the new organic, right? So, how is this manifesting itself? Well, this article uh, talks about how in Thailand, farmers are turning uh, to symbiotic uh, processes by employing armies of ducks. Uh, to consume pests. They could spray. They'd rather have uh, some tasty feathered friends here, which are less terrible for biodiversity. Uh, The added benefit, these animals fertilize the land and can even reduce uh, the need for plowing due to uh, their cute little webbed feet. Um, But also there are some less adorable things here. Regenerative agriculture... Uh, Leaders are also looking uh, to the practice of regenerative agriculture to help mitigate um, climate change, right? So biodiversity is incredibly important in in pushing back against climate change. Uh, We know that regenerative agriculture, because it is rooted in the biodiversity of the space, is often better situated to deal with uh, extreme, with with basically the the water system. uh, So these things are better adapted to local drought, better adapted to local floods, instead of planting something that may have its origins in a completely different biome thousands of miles away, thanks to the you know, Colombian exchange. So um, I guess my question for everybody here, as we're thinking about the business case, um, would you, say, spend more money on a can of water chestnuts for your next stir fry if you knew that the ducks did the weeding and not pesticides? Um, and is this the kind of thing that is rooted in storytelling uh, and adorable creatures uh, in a way that maybe is needs to be fundamental to that business case? Alice, you are smiling. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I'm really passionate <laughs> for this one. <laughs> All right. Um, <laughs> The, I think like the new labeling system, the carbon pr- footprint has just gone mainstream and biodiversity save would definitely be the next one. Mm-hmm. And it's also connecting to the farm today table trend. Um, the development of like creative economy or like reality as an entertainment trend is also, also connected. So during the pandemic, the live streaming farmers in China earn millions uh, in TikTok. So like um, these e-commerce opportunities for uh, of live streaming Offer a lifeline to uh, fruit farmers in rural areas struggling due to COVID re- in, uh, restri- uh, restrictions and uh, short growing seasons. And these platforms are direct selling channels for farmers, yeah. but also like direct evidence for consumers to engage with the farming environment of the end product. And what's interesting is there's a brand, the the startup, of the diary brand Adopt a Cow in China, allowing consumers to adopt their own cow and have 24 hour live streaming. Ah. So the consumers can check their cow, uh, anytime they want, um, and it has implications uh, for trust and also like and sustainability. Uh, the brands in the future, like like Adopt a Cow's product, like definitely it's more expensive than those of the two industry uh, giants, uh, uh, the Dr. Cow diary brand. But consumers are willing to pay for that price, yeah, um, and they're growing fast uh, these uh, recent
0: years. <laughs> it's also interesting to hear that we did some work looking into some influencers in South America. And we also found the growth of like rural farming influencers uh, getting sort of you know popular YouTube channels. They're not doing the direct selling yet, which obviously China has like a better infrastructure for that. But we are seeing a little bit more of that rich storytelling. And I'm sure people uh, in Bogota and Quito or whatever would be happy to pay a little bit more to eat these celebrity influencer uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know tomatoes or squash or whatever um, Trevor what's your take on on this would you pay more for that uh, can of water chestnuts or whatever and how would we even visualize that? I'd buy it with the duck,
1: I'm gonna be honest. Okay, well because, that's part of the stir fry. Yeah, so, yeah. If you if you are able to swap over to a farming practice that instead of a tractor, you have livestock that you can sell and replenish yourself. That's taking out two things literally taking out two birds with one stone. Um, but no, I think if I can support thank you. If I can support a farm that is doing these practices instead of something I mean, if you look at livestock right now, if we look at a lot of the agricultural practices, they are devastating to the biomes around them. And it's because of policy that was more supportive for farmers way back when the majority of who was around was farmers, but we haven't really updated it since. So if you're able to provide me something that's going to get in with a greener and more just environmentally friendly farming practice, oh yeah, I'll
0: eat that duck. Brendan, um, how would you, again, my mind goes back to packaging. How would we tell people to visual, how would you tell a brand to visualize some of these regenerative practices?
3: I think one of the concerns for most consumers when I've seen, when we're talking about biomimicry, um, something we've done with a a lot of different clients, but the tension to that is in the case of uh, ducks, right? In this case, if we're talking about a home insect invasion, you as a consumer are going to default to whatever is most applicable and which which is going to get the problem gone soonest, not whatever is going to be most cyclical. Um, and And a lot of times what's cyclical is what's best for the environment. So I think managing that trade off to making sure that it's not just something it's something we have to address more proactively in our, yeah. in our consumption habits. Um, in which case that's a whole different ball game We're we're managing the, the long game as opposed to the short. Uh, and I think that's a very big mindset shift when it comes to how people purchase things on a need basis.
0: Yeah. And um,
3: the, the last thing I'll say yeah. there is, um, as it relates to, um, uh, You know, I forgot what I was gonna say, so never mind. Back to you. (laughs) Well,
0: let me jump in real quick, because I think that is an interesting challenge. People are aware, I feel like culturally, people are more aware that there are like some bugs that are okay to keep in your house. You Mm -hmm. see a spider, and you're like, I wanna watch that. That's a really interesting challenge, I think, for um, for CPG brands, right? If you're a home good yeah. brand, right, and you're making the next Raid or whatever, how do you make one that kills the cockroaches but doesn't mess up the, you know, the the daddy long legs uh, or or whatever? And I think that there is, there clearly is like a real business case there, as we've seen with uh, what Alice was talking about in China. Um, from Silent Spring to Silent Apartment? Uh, well, I, if the if you have animals in your house that are making noises, I think you're going to need more than roach spray. Yeah. Um, but I do think that you brought, you brought up something about, um, we're talking about native species. Can we talk a little bit about invasive species?
1: Yeah, I mean, before we get into this, of course, the disclaimer that overfishing is one of the least talked about largest issues, so mm-hmm. we got to do this in the right way. But um, there's a new startup in Florida that is offering leather made from lionfish, uh, which is an invasive species, not just in Florida, but all of and down the entire continental coast. Um, they destroy reefs, they go after the wildlife there, they have no natural predators. And so this is a great way of tapping into the ocean instead of doing something that needs a whole cow, you can just take a couple of fish and pop out the same shoes or purse that you want. So question for the panel is, this may not be a vegan solution, but do you think consumers will find appeal in wearing leather of the sea, especially if it helps uh, just reefs, especially coming back together because that's been such a symbol for biodiversity and protection of the environment and of course, Bends that in, or do you think that this alternative product is dead in the
0: water? <laughs> I mean, we can pick Maybe on. I, I hate to pick on uh, audience members who are unprepared, but I see a couple people here in leather boots. Molly, I'm curious your take on on fish leather. Would you would 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 that be something that grabbed your attention next time you're at like I don't know like on Nordstrom's or at the you know or on Colhancom or whatever, looking for business shoes?
3: Not personally, Um, but I do think that there is some value here in making something out of invasive species. Yeah. I think that a lot of times people's first reaction is to just kill it, you know, like kill it with fire. Um, But it's nice to see something like this is very innovative. I think we talked about this actually on our flavors and ingredients briefing a couple of weeks back. We talked about this invasive crab species that has turned into... Uh, Crab whiskey, which again, not something I think I would personally consume, but it is nice to see that kind of innovation as opposed to just killing these
0: species. And I think that's an important part of the whole business case idea here, where it's like, It's hard to make a brand care about or an institution care about killing lionfish, you know. Um, But the business case there is like, but it can produce interesting leather, and therefore perhaps an interesting story. So maybe not everybody wants to buy fish leather shoes or drink crab whiskey, but some people do, and some people will get will be into that novel nature. Alice or Brendan?
3: Yeah, I'll I'll jump in. Only uh, first and foremost because our very own Eric Lau has also um, participated in um, lionfish while scuba diving. Yes, very true. Yeah. uh, so shout out to him. Um, but I also think it also, when it, when we talk about contribution, conservation as they practice is also very much a piece of this. Mm. Um, and I come from a, a long line of hunter and fishermen um, who very much view uh, some of their, their activities as being part of maintaining the environment by making sure that they are controlling populations. Whether we all agree or not that that's the best way, um, in some cases, hogs, uh, especially wild hogs in certain parts of the southwest. Um, maintaining that population is a vital part of making sure that you don't have animals running wild and other aspects of biodiversity. So I think it's just worth pointing out um, uh, conservation is very, very much connected to this con- to this conversation around biodiversity. And there's lots of brand implications for outdoor brands that play in that space as well.
0: Yeah, that's a perfect uh, transition to our next signal.
1: It is, but I have to make a very sure. quick fringe for the luxury goods tomorrow. I'm thinking of those Gen Z, like the life-size mermaid tails that people have been ordering lately, selling out
0: the... Like, I've seen those. Yeah, <laughs> it's like you
1: strap onto your whole legs and people go swimming in pools. If you make one of those uh, out of right. fish leather, like that's, sure. that's a lot of money. Yeah. But anyway, getting back... Back to it. Um, this signal, we're looking at some Kenyan farmers that It's important to remember there is still time to reverse some of the harmful practices that humanity has been going through just globally in terms of the environment. And in the or Ruwa village in Kenya, over 30 livestock herding families leased land to a large-scale farmer, but unsustainable and destructive farming practices dwindled the resources and put the farmers, their livestock, and the surrounding wildlife at risk. So to combat this issue, the herders converted some of their land into a wildlife conservancy, allowing for coexistence between between all of these people and these animals, as well as creating local jobs through ecotourism. The signal goes on to say that community-run wildlife conservancies established on private land are increasingly playing a vital role in safeguarding areas that governments can't or won't protect, while also bolstering local livelihoods. So the question here is, ecotourism has been popular for some time, but with this situation in mind, what do you think are the implications for either nature-based tourism or ecological pressures on standard resorts and tourist culture?
0: Well look it's it's uh, I'll I'll jump in here first really quick cuz I've spent a little time in Kenya and I mean one of the biggest Cash exports there. I mean, it's interesting because they basically have an agricultural system that is designed to feed the people in the country and the surrounding area. But the real cash exports all leave the country, right? Uh, specifically, like they grow huge amounts of Europe's flowers. If you go to there are there's a, a large valley not far from Nairobi that is just covered in uh, greenhouses, right? That are growing every rose that you're going to buy on the street in you know um, in in Germany or France, right? Um, and I think there's an interesting tension there where it's like the, the, the best resourced agriculture there is the one that is sort of the least land intensive. And I think I, I would have to imagine some of these spaces are not thinking that much about what their impact on biodiversity is, right? But that is an interesting question then for the littles of the world, the Carfours, those major European grocery chains who are selling all of that produce and all of those flowers that come from Kenya. Is there a way in which they could invest themselves in some of this biodiversity, even if they are not necessarily you know, raising cattle or whatever uh, in the way that that ends up in sort of local markets. I, I wonder if there isn't uh, a closer way in which they could uh, sort of leverage some of their resources, especially in a place where land is relatively cheap. Well, I'll just throw in right.
3: really quickly. Uh, yeah. Molly Barth and I, uh, shout out Molly Barth. Uh, worked on a project, uh, future of enjoyment, and one of the spaces that we were interrogating for a client was around uh, the, the very need to preserve areas where, so that we can enjoy them in the future. Even yeah. thinking about um, skiing in a lot of different areas, if there is no snow in those areas, uh, that where there's naturally snow, there's a lot of repercussions, right. both environmental and also functionally for having fun. So. Um, the way that brands facilitate communities uh, also is not just for the very you know necessity of having those, but for a tourism, fun, yeah. uh, recreational perspective as well.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. Taking it back to Singapore too, the core of the island there, you have all of these incredible skyscrapers and technological innovations, it's kept as jungle. And so you're keeping the heart of Singapore still fully natural. Mm-hmm. It's exactly that integration of both and that coexistence of both. A
0: lot of these business cases are just, as, as I'm sitting here processing this and we go to our... our um, our final signal here. So many of these are just about pushing, companies and institutions need to push themselves to think a little more creatively. Mm-hmm. Because it's not hard to sell the product, you just have to ask yourself, I think, what your your role is. Aaron? I think
1: that's a huge frustration uh, that we hear with consumers, like all individual action. But if brands can do the work to make this
0: opportunity at scale, you know? subsidize the farmland, make the recycling places in the grocery store where you're shopping. There's places that yeah. Home
1: Depot, as we were talking about, could totally help people re-irrigate their lawns for natural goods. Like, that's the space where I think brands can step in in the next
0: tomorrow, the best time to spend. Time. <laughs> <laughs> right, just as Alice was saying, too late to wait. All right, let's get into uh, our Sorry, party. I want to quickly
2: ask, ask something. Yeah. I feel like the um, agricultural and supply chain definitely both lack of workforce these days, and also like this have implications for education as well, like kids lack of common sense these days. Um, and I feel like <laughs> the, the slowdown of economy forced consumers and investment to look for more practical solutions uh, in, in the future, in the coming years and the remote working migration of entrepreneurs and creators will also accelerate innovations of hotland America. So I believe the next way of innovation will definitely come from the inner part of the U.S. Um, so I, I feel like that there's tons of opportunities there and potential.
0: Yeah, I love that. Well, the inner parts of, uh, of every one of these, whether we're talking about the U.S. or Kenya, there's definitely tons of potential um, let's go to the final signal here um, and it's funny because it, this is something I was saying about imaginations this is something that's like captured people's imaginations forever right this idea that you can go into the rainforest somewhere in Brazil and find like a flower that will cure cancer right that is how often how we talk about the value of biodiversity but uh, one thing that this article you know this article talks about a lot of different things here that's really not Accurate? That's not how. That's not how several things work, right? That's not how cancer works. That's not how biodiversity works. And that's definitely not how drug development works, right? But it is something that I think is a cultural trope that we find very attractive. This idea that if we preserve nature, there is a one-to-one value there. What this article talks about is um, traditional medicine, which is obviously something people are very interested in. A lot of people coming from indigenous cultures have these really rich. Uh, you know, system and sort of uh, wellness systems that are based very much on uh, biodiversity. Now, I think you can ask yourselves questions about how effectual some of these indigenous uh, wellness practices are, right? They're not run by the scientific method. They uh, They are good at some things. They are not good at others, but that doesn't mean they don't have a lot of value and a lot of potential. But... There is some issues here about this sort of idea of like I don't know. There's uh, to me, there's a little bit of questions here about like uh, colonialism and this value, the, the way that we sort of view like the value of nature. How do we bring something out of the rainforest in a way that benefits all of society without being fully extractive, without you know ripping off the indigenous peoples living in that in that space? But obviously, this is where those stakes are, are really high, if we're looking for the next treatments for cancer and diabetes and MS, is trying to source them to these sort of indigenous um, and uh, biodiverse spaces. So I guess the question is, what is a pharmaceutical company to, to do here with this sort of collective part of our biodiversity imagination? We talked a lot about food and agriculture today, but what is the role specifically of like health and wellness uh, in this space, whether we're talking about CPG people making your ibuprofen, or you know, big pharma companies really trying to find that next big breakthrough, I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on that.
2: Yeah, there's a book uh, called Resilience Thinking. I highly recommend it. Um, it's about like the response to biodiversity has been more, more of the same, by more control and greater efficiency. But, but like this book offers a different way to managing resource. Embrace like human and natural system as a like, complex entities and continually adapting to mm. circles of change. And it explains why greater efficiency by itself cannot solve the resource problem and offer like a like a alternate that opens up like other options uh, and there' in that book it, it has a case about like the flooding history of the Florida um, Everglades and and it's really interesting about the history of, of, of flooding uh, the Florida history there because like it, it has a similar philosophy of uh, traditional Chinese medicine actually mm. it's like the body is a powerful instrument it's like interconnected and, and its intelligence works far beyond the human brain and the one thing affect the other. So it's not like if you're, if you have a headache, if, if your brain has a problem, it's probably lack of sleep. Um, so, so it's really, it's also connected to like the, uh, the registered medicines. It's about like, you also know, like, you know, 80% of registered medicines come from plants and or have been inspired by natural products. Um, and for right now, like the cure for cancer or COVID could, could be going extinct. Um, and and that's I feel like, um, you know, the, the COVID pandemic has exposed this like importance of biodiversity as a protection against a new disease in the yeah. future and as an element uh, of the medical response. Uh, we know there are many brands that are kind of tackling uh, this issue. I know Bayer has articulated a strategy that includes protecting forests and supporting farmers and in integrating Biodiversity,
0: yeah. Yeah, look, it's, I mean, the the COVID 19 pandemic was a reminder that nature is not outside the healthcare ecosystem. You know, even though hospitals are are ultra air conditioned and perfectly beige and sanitized, uh, it doesn't mean that uh, nature doesn't have a a role to play in this. And I would be really, you know, shout out to Bayer for doing that. I'd be really curious what the Merck's and the Pfizer's of the world, what is their take on biodiversity? Because it is directly related to what they're going to have to handle in the 21st century.
1: I'm also going back to your point of just avoiding the colonialism of that, because if you are going to international space, if you're going to uh, land that is traditionally indigenous or generally natural, well, these are all common resources. Um, and I think of Chile's current proposed rework of their own constitution, where they're putting indigenous communities and the environment at the forefront, providing the environment its own set of rights. So maybe there's a way that these companies, they cut them in on the check, uh, their regenerative right. practices. There's a way, uh, because if you're going to be taking this resource, well, you're going to want that for a while so that you can continue, especially with growing population, to produce that. So what's the best way of reaping what you sow in the long term? Replanting yeah. that.
0: Yeah. Much like uh, biodiversity. Um, Cool. All right. So, this has all been an exercise in us looking at a lot of different spaces where biodiversity could play a really interesting business case role. What I would love from the panel, in as few words as possible, is to give me your best pitch for the business case for biodiversity. In a 280 character tweet length response, what is your best case for that? And I'm going to start. Uh, with uh, the most uh, Twitter online of us. uh, Well, no, there are a lot of Twitter online people here right now. We'll start with Brendan.
3: Uh, Follow me at B. Sean. Um,
0: Yeah. (laughs) I'll
3: start connecting this to our elements culture, net age spirituality. The passion is there for maintaining and preserving biodiversity. It is not yet connected to more tangible brand action points.
0: All right. Alice, what is your best business case for biodiversity?
2: Um, I think the, the the most practical one would be like the we are losing an important drug every two years. That's a fact. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's important enough. But um, it, it's like if it's like a more a, a higher level pitch would be like uh, the COVID lockdown, maybe the rehearsal of the future climate lockdown. <laughs> Uh, That's kind of alarming.
0: (laughs) That is a hell of a business case. Uh, Trevor, uh, last thought, what's your best business case for biodiversity?
1: I'm gonna say biodiversity is like a vaccine. You can get your two shots now or you can get put on a ventilator
0: later and it might be a literal one. Shut up! Damn. Yeah. All right. Uh, we're getting snaps in the room for that one. Um, guys, amazing conversation. Thank you so much. I will see all of you in the jungle soon. Big shout out to uh, Alice, uh, Brendan, who wears his sunglasses at night, and uh, Trevor as well on his first uh, co-briefing. And thank you all for, for joining. Thank you for tuning online. You can join us Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday on our LinkedIn page at noon. While you're there, jump in the comment section. Also remember to RSVP so you can watch. Let us know your thoughts on that business case. We'd love to hear. Uh, your own take. Uh, Tomorrow, as we said, we're doing a really cool briefing uh, about new school luxury. I guarantee you're going to learn a lot. Um, And if you're interested in Q, the cultural intelligence platform we use to build today and every day's briefings, we'd love to give you a demo of it. It is incredibly valuable as we think about huge questions about biodiversity, but also if you wanted to look up things like lionfish and duck farming, I think it has some cool insights in that too. So until tomorrow, consider yourselves briefed.